We are so thrilled to be partnering with Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. As you all know, I'm a huge Hinge advocate as I met my partner of almost three years on the app. Even before meeting him, Hinge was always my go-to app because I met more relationship-minded people here and had some great dates. Clearly, I haven't been on the app for a little while, but I re-downloaded it to check out some of the new features. One that stood out to me was the voice prompt, my best friend's take on why you should date me, where your friend can hype you up. Not only does this make the profile creation less daunting, but it's not always easy to see your own green flags. So to test it out, I asked UA some fun prompts to get her take on what I could put if I was dating again. So the first one, how long have we known each other? What was your first impression of me and how has that changed? Julie and I have known each other for almost 10 years. My first impression of Julie was that she's very social, but I've learned that she has a lot more depth to her beyond the social butterfly that she is. My next prompt, what do you think are my green flags? I would say she's deeply loyal. She believes in love, curious mindset, and she is fearlessly ambitious. And then last but not least, what kind of friend am I? Julie is the kind of friend who will always have your back, no matter what. Damn, that feels nice to hear. So download Hinge and try voice prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. I love wine, but sometimes it can get really expensive, which is why I'm so excited that today's episode is brought to you by Last Bottle Wines. If you don't know, they're a Napa-based online wine shop with a twist. They offer just one hand-picked wine per day until it sells out, which is often an hour's. So new day, new wine, always at incredible prices. We're talking 30 to 70% off retail. And the best part is that there's no subscriptions, no fees, and no minimum purchase. Just a daily email with a really great wine. They're offering Datable listeners 10% off your first order with code Datable. And now is such a great time to join as their marathon sale is coming up on March 28th and 29th. They flip that one day rule on its head and offer back to back deals, which means that wines are only up on the site for a couple minutes at a time and shipping is 100% free. They send us a mini marathon package of some of their favorites and let me tell you, they were delicious. Sign up at lastbottlewines.com and use the code datable and find out why Last Bottle is the most fun way to discover and buy amazing wine. The Dateable Podcast is an insider's look into modern dating that the Huffington Post calls one of the top 10 podcasts about love and sex. On each episode, we'll talk to real daters about everything from sex parties to sex droughts, date fails to diaper fetishes, and first moves to first loves. I'm your host, USU, former dating coach turned dating sociologist. You'll also hear from my co-host and producer, Julie Kraftchik, as we explore this crazy dateable world. Hi, Datables. Welcome to another episode of the Datable Podcast, a show all about the sociology of dating because we've been observing dating behaviors for years now, and we want to dig into the whys of people's behavior so we can get to the hows of bettering people's behavior, including yourself. Absolutely. I feel like it's always yourself. It always comes down to yourself. But I'm excited today because we're going a little past early dating. 
We're going all the way to marriage. But what's really interesting about this episode is that it's super relatable to all stages of relationships. We definitely dig into it. The authors that we talked to wrote a book called The 8080 Marriage, Nate and Kaylee Kemp. And what was interesting about it is I think when you're dating, if you are, your goal is marriage or committed partnership. Sometimes it can feel a long ways off, but I think it's really good to hear this stuff from people that have been through it. One of the guests, Kaylee, she mentioned it was kind of like when you're about to give birth, there's the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, and you read it before you give birth. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind of, it is a really good analogy for dating because, you know, if you're looking to get into a long-term committed relationship, why not start now? I think people really just don't know what the fuck to expect after they get married. They think all of their problems will be resolved and all is good because society recognizes you as an entity together. But how you operate in a in a relationship is so dependent on you. Mm-hmm. And this conversation dispels the myth that all relationships should be 50-50. Everybody contributes equally. And they're saying, no, that is not how it works from their own personal experience and from a very traumatizing experience of almost getting to that point of, mm-hmm. of divorce. So I just think that this is a conversation anybody should be hearing, even if you're not in a relationship, because it preps you for what's to come if if a long-term relationship is what you're looking for. Right. I was actually looking at some stats that was interesting. So from 2009 to 2019, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it typically takes a few years to get the stats. Divorces have been on the decline, but mm. also marriages have been on the decline. So it kind of evens out a bit. But I think people are just more conscious in general. And, yeah. you know, like as we're talking to Kaylee and Nate, they were saying they wish they had this material when they first got married. Mm -hmm. And I think because of podcasts or because of just different, you know, more material and people coming forward with their stories, at least I want to believe it's been able to pave the way for more conscious relationships that hopefully won't end in divorce because we're kind of like mentally prepping ourselves a bit. I know you never know until you're in it, but at least like, at least knowing that things could come down the pipeline, I think is an important first step. I don't know about you, but even when we started this podcast, I thought thought I was well prepared for a marriage thinking mm-hmm. I got this. <laughs> I'm going to crush relationships and as we go on with our seasons the more I feel like I don't know. And not that we'll ever get to a place where we know everything. Right. But it's good it's nice to be in a perspective of there's more I can learn versus oh I know everything about relationships now. Oh, for sure. I think like I just assumed you met someone, you got married, yeah. That was it. Lived that was out it. happily ever after. <laughs> it actually kind of reminds me of an episode we had last season with Alice that talked mm. about how her and her now ex-husband were co-parenting in yes. the same duplex. And she mentioned, because they just met right in college, you know, she said, like, we didn't have any relationship education at all. We just yeah. kind of did it. And, you know, she said if they had some of the tools, maybe things would have ended a different way. But by the time they got there, it was almost too late. This is what the thought that is astounding to me is I read this in a book the other day that said love is really based on ignorance. So that first initial falling in love period is because you're falling in love with what you think your partner mm-hmm. is. 
And once you're in a relationship and you are doing all the domestic things together, you are revealed someone else and your ignorance goes away. So the love doesn't mean that it goes away. It just shifts to a different kind of love. And I think that's what Hollywood does not cover. That's Mm -mm. what these love songs do not cover is once the ignorance leaves, what happens when you get to know your partner more and more? Yeah, and I think we definitely touch on the domestic side of relationships that I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think can be a little intimidating. I'll admit I've never lived with someone. It's definitely intimidating. I think back to even roommates I've had. And, you mm. know, there were domestic things that became tension points. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're dating, you think, oh, I just need to find someone that checks all these boxes yeah. and, you know, makes me feel good and does all the things. And then you add like the extra layer of domestic side in. It's a lot to kind of feel overwhelmed by. But I think mm-hmm. this episode and other, you know, resources out there, I like it because it's mentally preparing me. I started having conversations with my partner about it, about just like all the things I learned in this episode. I think having those conversations are really important, even as you're like in an early stage of a relationship. If you're trying to get there. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that the romance has to die. So we do uncover <laughs> that in the conversation. But it does mean the reality TV effect does subside. What I mean by that is we've talked about this on this show. This is why people on The Bachelor fall in love so fast because their only goal is to fall in love. Their only goal is to watch their relationship progress. And then they're once they pick their partner, they're thrown back into reality and they have to mm-hmm. do live together. And that's why so many of them break up because they realize, oh, there's other shit that we need to do other than be on a beach and sip cocktails and tell each other that we're falling in love with each other. So the reality TV effect does subside and the reality hits, the actual reality hits. And this is where we pick up the conversation. Fantasy over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you can't, doesn't mean the fantasy has to be boring, right? That's true. That's true. It's just different. It's real. It's different. It's real. <laughs> You're just not as dumb about things. Well, it's interesting when I was looking at the stats, I think you think of the reasons for divorce are going to be, you know, money or infidelity or, you mm. know, substance yep. abuse or some of the big stuff. But one of the most common was just conflict. These little things, they start to build a lot of resentment. And I think once you build resentment, that can be the biggest danger in a relationship for sure. Yes. Uh, I just met up with a couple recently. They're about to get married and they they just bought their new house together and they just moved in for the first time together. And my friend said to me, the most surprising thing I found about my partner is that he doesn't like Pottery Barn. <laughs> and I know it sounds so, I don't know, so <laughs> minimal and, you know, if you are stepping back. But she said we had many fights over our taste in furniture that we never thought about before. And here we are a month from getting married and we're fighting about what kind of furniture we should get and which store we should get it from. I mean, I'm not going to like shit on them because I'm very particular in my furniture. So I totally feel that. Yes. But then on the other side, if you take a step back, it's like it took so much effort to find this person. Are we really going to fight about Pottery Barn? You know, like that's the part. And I'm not saying I'm above it. I probably in the moment would be like, what the fuck? I want this couch. Like, why don't you want this also? But it seems so trivial and ridiculous when you're removed from it. And that's where we pick up the conversation too in this interview is what if you're the partner that's driving the relationship more? Mm -hmm. How do you get your partner to step up or to contribute or to 
to kind of assert themselves even more. So it's all the dynamics of a relationship we uncover in this <laughs> one hour interview, oh, which is insane. This is such a good one. I'm so glad we had them on the show. Such a good one. One of the questions that we talk about is how do you like discern from someone not stepping up and doing the work of like mm-hmm. being interested and in being a healthy relationship versus, you know, just the dynamics that play out in relationships. And I think even from early stages of dating, this stuff comes into play. Like we're always Mm -hmm. hearing people say, I'm doing all the work or I'm planning everything. Like what's the line, you know, of this isn't a good situation versus, you know, people bring different things to the table kind of thing. And you've been there, right, Julie? Oh, totally. (laughs) Totally. Of like that I've been the one planning everything. Absolutely. And I think some of it is I took it on myself. But then I don't know, in retrospect, looking back on it, too, I'm like, was I trying to force something that wasn't there, you know? I think about this all the time because with my previous relationship, we got into many fights that I felt like he should have planned more. Every trip we go on, it was my itinerary and I would resent him while we're on the trip not enjoying our vacation because I kept thinking, this is what I want to do. How about you just pick lunch for once? But in hindsight, I kind of think about one, I never communicated this until after the fact, which ruined our vacation already. It was a little late. And the second thing I was thinking about was he had other interests that I just never cared about. And I wish I would have taken more time and asked him on this trip, what are the things that Mm. you would be interested in seeing? And then if he said X, Y, and Z, then it gives me the, uh, it allows me to say, how about you plan those things, right? right?" Well, I think it's hard because it's you're merging two people that have very different ways of living. And, you know, it's one of those things that you, when you think about it, let's say you do meet in your 30s or 40s, this person has had 30 years plus of life experience before you. They've had this whole life that you are not part of. And it's actually kind of like, kind of meta when you think about it, because you're like, you were a functioning person before me. I don't need to do all this stuff. But I think when I stepped into the planner role, I think there's a few things. Like one, I've trouble relinquishing control. So that's something Mm -hmm. I've learned about myself. Mm -hmm. But then the other side is I took it very personally. Like this person doesn't want to, you know, make a reservation because I'm not important enough to them. And I've learned over the years that it doesn't always mean that. Like that's like reading a lot into it. Like people show love in different ways. And just because that's something that I do doesn't mean that that's how someone, one, needs to be loved also. And that also what they're going to reciprocate. But then, you know, that's the line, though, is we hear all these people all the time that are in these relationships or situationships where they're doing all the work. And that's that's not a good role to be in either. I just always think about this image of a couple. And let's say one person is doing all the trip planning and resenting their partner. And their partner is like scrubbing the kitchen, resenting their partner yeah. for not helping clean. When both people feel like they're right, <laughs> you know, thinking what they're doing is so important. Why isn't my partner contributing? That is what a, a true relationship is. <laughs> well, it's it all comes down to communication. I mean, 
we say it's so cliche and we say it all the time, but I think when we start to bottle this stuff up, like even if, you know, you're in an early stage relationship and it feels like you're the one texting all the time, maybe it's that they're not that into it, but maybe it's just that you're doing it all so they don't feel like you want them to do it or they need to do it. There's so many reasons and I think we're so afraid to have those conversations because we're afraid we're going to get the answer we don't want a lot of times. Mm. But I think there's only upside because I mean, you know, worst case scenario is someone says, I'm not that into you. But wouldn't you rather know now than, you know, yeah. months and months down the road? And best case is they, they are aware of what you've been like harnessing in. I think I've definitely learned that. I used to harness so much. That is Me the too. worst, the worst. It's a very lonely place because you're only talking to yourself. And it's so unfair to your partner too. Like yeah. it's super unfair to them when you think about it. Yes. This is very much related to our question for this episode. Someone wrote in and said, I just started seeing someone. It's been about a few dates in and I feel like I'm constantly planning the dates. <sighs> How do I get her to plan more of the dates back? Well, this is what we've been talking about, right? <laughs> it's communicating what you want out of the relationship. Even in early stages of dating, you cannot expect the person you're dating to read your mind or to act the way you do. My mom always says to me, you can't expect other people to be you. It's Mm -hmm. true because only you know what you want. They don't know. So I think it's very important to communicate that uh, what I really appreciate about a partner is someone who plans things or takes initiative in planning things. I think it's also helpful to sit back and think, have I even allowed this person to plan things. I know some friends who are very adamant about going to certain restaurants, Mm -hmm. doing certain things, getting tickets for certain events, and then their partner or date is just along for the ride. (laughs) Otherwise, it's not a good date. So relinquishing that control is another way of thinking, huh, have I even allowed this person to take initiative? I think it's how do you make it more collaborative? Mm. My partner and I, we have a running list of things we want to do on Google Keep. It's just Mm. a list of activities or restaurants or beaches and like hikes, whatever it is. And that's just there. We just add to it as we come up with things. And even if we're talking to each other, we'll add things. And then we can refer to it. And it doesn't feel like one person's planning it that way. It just feels like it's more of a collaborative nature. Mm. And I'm also not keeping track. Like, am I putting 80% of the things on here? Is he putting 80%? Mm -hmm. I'm not like thinking about it that way. It's more of here is our list of running things we want to do. And, you know, we just have this at our disposal when we're looking for something to do. So I think that's been really great. But I think also another way is you kind of alluded to earlier, how do you ask them what they want? Like even saying, hey, I know you're into music. I would love to join you on a concert that you really like. That would be really fun to me. I think one, it shows that you're invested in the relationship, that you want to partake in their activities. And then also it invites them to plan something because they know you want to come to it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I've also heard this. Well, actually, before I get to my thought, my question to you, Julie, is how do you and your partner prioritize which things to do first? It's kind of in the moment. Like every Mm. weekend, we'll be like, what do we feel like doing? We'll look at the list and we'll see what jumps out. Honestly, it hasn't been much of a 
production or conversation. Mm -hmm. It's just been very natural. But I, depending on the relationship, maybe that would be more, you know, challenging. I think both of us are pretty laid back of what we do. But I would say if people have really strong opinions on some, maybe there's a way to star the ones that you really, Mm -hmm. really want to do so you can prioritize accordingly and alternate. Maybe it's, I've also done like all plan a weekend. Mm-hmm. I remember when his friends were in town, I was like, I want to take you out and plan a weekend because I did all this stuff with you and your friends that you planned and t- invited me to and took mm-hmm. me to. So I think that's a really good way to kind of balance it too is it's it was kind of fun. I'm like, I'm going to do a surprise night for you. And I How think fun. like if you can make it more of, you know, an adventure too and a gift to your partner, it's not as like, oh my God, here I go planning and doing this yeah. stuff again, you know? It's all about the mindset there, too. Yes. Well, that's so much fun. Collaboration is the key to a relationship. And that's so fun to bring the planning together and not feel like it's tit for tat. Like I plan this and then you plan that. I was going to offer a piece of perspective from the person who is doing less of the planning. Mm. I've been in that position too. If I feel extreme anxiety and pressure Mm. being around someone who's constantly doing all the planning, who beats me to it. And I feel like I'm just trying to take a breath before I even think about what we're doing next. And you've already thought about that next step. So just, you know, maybe that's just something for you to think about if you are the planner. Your partner may feel a little pressure too. That's a really good point. I definitely have friends that are more type A with planning than I am. They'll make Mm. brunch reservations four months from now. And I'm like, I can't even think about next weekend. So I think talking to your partner about how do you operate is really important because it could just be that you both operate very differently. And that Mm. might not be a bad thing. Maybe one person is the more planner because that's, you know, that's important to them. And I think also just to offer another perspective too, I remember dating this guy and he planned everything. It was always Mm -hmm. what restaurant he wanted to go to. First, I thought it was really great because I was like, that's so assertive and I really like that. But then I realized that when I wanted to do something, it was only on his schedule. And I quickly realized that someone being the driver is not as important to me as I once thought. Mm. I think with other partners that haven't been that way honestly it hasn't bothered me as much because they have been just more easygoing about what we do and it hasn't been like my way or the highway type of thing and I think sometimes it's it's easy in early stage dating to get caught up in especially with gender roles like the man plans all the dates and that's how they show they're really into you but I think you also have to think about like is this the relationship I want long term Yes, that's a very good point. I've been there too. I've definitely (laughs) been there. And you realize you're just there to fill a a spot. Right, right. Anyone could be there. It's what they want to do. Yeah. It's what they want to do. And they just want a companion to be along for the ride. So I've definitely been there. But this is a a really great way to just wrap up this question, Mm -hmm. which is you have to communicate with your partner. How do we want to operate as an entity together? Mm -hmm. That's very important. And if we're talking about planning here, who is better at planning? So you can Mm -hmm. figure out where your strengths are. And then how do you want your partner to contribute to the planning is also very important. Take into account their interests. I think knowing yourself also, because Mm. like we were just saying that I didn't like being along for the ride. Maybe there is someone out there that does. So I think it is all about knowing yourself and what is going to work for you in addition to what you just said. Yes. 
Yes. Cool. Okay. Well, let's go into some announcements. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to keep this going too long because we have such a good episode in store. Uh, quick announcements. You know, we have the Facebook group, Love in the <laughs> Time of Corona. We are still calling it that because we are still indeed in the time of Corona. Yes, we are. <laughs> so one day we will change the name, but not yet. So Love in the Time of Corona by the Dateable Podcast. That's the Facebook group at Dateable Podcast on Instagram. You can always check us out on YouTube if you're curious about our, you know, recording arrangements <laughs> and you just want to see our faces, you can always go to YouTube. We'll occasionally be doing YouTube lives too, where we answer dating questions. So you can replay. There's one we did a couple weeks ago that you can re-listen to on there. So definitely mm-hmm. check out YouTube if you haven't already. Any other announcements we can think of? Tell a friend, you know, especially yeah. this episode. Share this with a friend. We've said this a billion times, but even if you are so single right now, single AF, you should be sharing this with a friend because, you know, unless of course you don't want to be married or in a long-term committed relationship, then you do you. But like a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast eventually want to find their person and settle into more domestic bliss. So I think if that is something that you aspire to, this episode is so thought provoking. I know for me in a, like a semi new relationship, I don't know what constitutes as new, I guess under a year, I'll call it a new relationship. Sounds good. Um, But I think like, you know, we are on a serious track. So it's like, I need to think about this stuff, even, Mm -hmm. you know, six months into a relationship. So I think regardless of where you are, this is really, really good food for thought in this episode. So share it with a friend who needs it. Sharing is caring. (laughs) Okay, let's do a few quick messages from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pros. Most of you have probably heard me talk about Pros, the world's most personalized hair care, and I want to update you all on the incredible results I've been seeing since using my customized products, which include a personalized shampoo, conditioner, and a pre-shampoo mask. My hair is now noticeably smoother, and I used to have really frizzy hair, and now it's much easier to tame. I personally really love the pre-shampoo mask because, well, it smells incredible, and it just makes my hair feel even softer. To get started with the personalization process, you take an in-depth hair quiz with questions around where you live, your diet, and your lifestyle. And they even take into account stress. By analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros determines a unique blend of ingredients to treat your exact concerns. Pros is a healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash datable. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It is no surprise Julie and I are huge fans of therapy, especially online therapy, and BetterHelp can do exactly just that. They match you with your own licensed therapist and connect you in a safe and private online environment. I was able to start communicating with my therapist in less than 48 hours hours super fast. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Their licensed professionals specialize in everything from stress management, uh, anxiety, trauma, dating, and grief. We at Dateable wish for all of you to live a happier, more wholesome life, and we think therapy and prioritizing your mental health will accomplish that. So as our listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash dateable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, 
com slash D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E. Okay, let's get into the 80-80 marriage with Nate and Kaylee. How do you have a successful relationship or a marriage? Nobody knows these days because the model for a successful relationship keeps changing with our society. And we no longer can look to our parents to say, this is what makes a marriage work because 50% of our parents are also divorced. So this is very interesting that we have Nate Klemp and Kaylee Klemp on the phone with us today, who wrote a book called The 80-80 Marriage, A New Model for Happier, Stronger Relationships. They live in Boulder. They've been there for nine years. I'm from Fort Collins. Uh, we're fellow Coloradoans here. <laughs> and they're both 42 years old. They're married to each other, right? Just want to confirm. Yes. <laughs> that is true. And what is the 80-80 model for relationships? Well, in particular, ex- exploring how to use a mindset shift to radical generosity and the structural shift to shared success as you transition from dating to the early stages of intimate relationship. We are so excited to have you. And the book was phenomenal. So definitely excited to dig in deeper on this episode with you all. Awesome. So, so excited to be here. You you teed this up so beautifully that 8080 is really about letting go of the old models that our parents had about what relationships might look like. And instead saying, as we're going into relationships, now we know that we are equals with each other and we want to create a relationship where it feels like we're equals and in love. And previously, the very best that we could do was the technology of fairness. Let's make Mm -hmm. sure that we're equals by making things super fair, (laughs) 50-50, exactly the same. And the problem was that created so much for us to fight about. I was the one who picked up dinner last time. It's your turn. Mm -hmm. I was the one who Mm -hmm. planned our cool date last time. Now it's your turn. Keeping tabs. Exactly. And so this keeping score was such an issue. And so 8080 is all about dropping keeping score, shifting your mindset to that of radical generosity where you're contributing, appreciating, and revealing to each other. And from that place, you're able to create a structure of shared success, which really just means you know your values, which means you can identify your priorities, set clear boundaries, identify your roles, and balance your power, which interestingly leads to really great sex. (laughs) Well, I think that's really interesting because I feel like we keep hearing in modern culture that we want to strive for equality. Mm -hmm. And I know you just touched on this a bit, but why do you think this is flawed, like this motion of equality? Yeah, well, I actually think there's a really important distinction here between equality and fairness. Mm. And so as Kaylee was mentioning earlier, we are all about equality in marriage. And I think like we are living in the generation that's all about equality in marriage in contrast to our grandparents who had very different structures. Even our parents may have had very different structures. So I think the key question couples are asking now is how can we be equals and in love without killing each other, essentially? (laughs) And the reason we're killing each other is because of this very clunky technology of fairness that Kaylee was talking about Mm. a, a minute ago. This idea that the way we get equality is by creating this like the world's biggest spreadsheet ever that tracks each person's contributions across all these different domains and runs some sort of like incredibly sophisticated algorithm in the background that tells us when things are exactly fair and when 
they're not. And when they're not, mm-hmm. we're going to fight with each other. So like, mm. that's kind of the the mindset that I think many couples have going into that transition from dating to a more serious relationship. It was definitely our mindset. So the whole idea of 8080 is how can we be equals without reverting to that sort of like habitual pattern of fairness. And so some of the technologies include that mindset shift to radical generosity. So instead of keeping score, we're focused on appreciating, doing radically generous acts of contribution, which turns out to be contagious and gives us more of what we actually wanted in the first place. But but yeah, I think the real problem is that that really murky distinction between equality and fairness. And Nate, you touched upon this too, is that you experience this in your own marriage. And I'm guessing that's what inspired you to write this book. I, I feel like this notion of fairness is also very subjective. And I hear in my parents' relationship, my mom's like, what's fair is that I cook and he cleans. And in my dad's eyes, he's like, you cook and I do the yard work and that's fair. So can you kind of tell us about what was it that inspired you to come up with this 80-80 notion? I love the story of your parents because (laughs) fairness doesn't actually exist. And that's one of the reasons that people Mm. end up fighting about it so much is One, our definitions are totally different. So what actually equals fairness, but also our metrics are completely broken. And Mm. part of this is is availability bias, which is the psychologist's fancy way of saying, I know 100% of the things that I do, and I know Mm. very little of what you do. So I am highly aware of how much time and attention I put into making sure that when we were hanging out with our families, it was awesome. I have very little awareness of how horrible was the yard that you just cleaned up. And so so there's this sense of what I did was hard and what you did was easy. And so what Uh I did counts more and I should get credit for it. And so again, we're fighting over something that doesn't even exist. And it was was Mm. funny, as part of this book, we did about 100 interviews. And if we asked people the question, do you ever fight about fairness? They would say, not really. And then they would go on to tell us all of these stories of them fighting about fairness. It was completely unfair that I'm the one who always puts the cap on the toothpaste, right? Or like, it's totally unfair that I cook these beautiful meals. And when it's his turn, we go for pizza. Mm. So what did you guys run into? What was it that, you know, inspired the shift that you looked at your own marriage? Yeah, well, we had quite an interesting transition from dating to a more serious relationship, which I I assume is pretty much ubiquitous. It's never Mm -hmm. a very very clean and easy transition. But for us, we had been dating long distance and we first mm. met in high school. Wow. So we dated a little bit then, then we broke up and seven years later, we got back together. At that point, we were long distance for a year or so. And it was like this magical experience. <laughs> and every time I saw Kaylee, I thought she walked on water and, and I'm hoping <laughs> she thought the same about me. And then we decided to move in together. Kaylee had a condo and I moved in and it was like, like a week or two into that, that we just hit the wall of fairness and mm. actually start the book on this story where I used to walk into this condo and I would just like kick off my shoes and leave them in a pile in front of mm-hmm. the door. And so Kaylee actually hid my shoes in like one of those cabinets above the refrigerator that nobody ever uses. <laughs> oh my God. And, and that was one of our first fairness fights where it was like, what, what are you doing? Why did you hide my shoes? And from her perspective, you know, here I was just leaving my crap everywhere. But it was really interesting that we had no idea 
idea, all of the structural things that we were going to need to think about and all the changes that were going to happen just from that transition to from like long distance dating where everything was magical and we'd meet up at a hotel to like all of a sudden we're living together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think this is something I definitely related to as I read this book. I'm in a newer relationship, less than a year. I've never lived with someone before. And I think a lot of our listeners might be in the same boat or even just an early date stage dating. I think sometimes it's hard to imagine that it will go to that place where we're kind of fighting over all these mundane type things. And I think a lot of people that haven't even met their person yet or want to think they're different in a way. It's like, I've spent all this time trying to find this person and now I'm just going to fight about shoes. Is this inevitable or is there a way that couples can get around (laughs) this? It's a little scary to me. I'll be completely honest. (laughs) I think in some ways we wrote this book as a gift to our past selves. And what we Mm. hope is to a new generation of people who are entering dating, that had we had any of the tools around, how do you reveal in a way that's thoughtful and caring so that you don't end up fighting or doing things that are passive aggressive around things as ridiculous as shoes? I think that also holding more space for appreciation for one another, which again, in the Mm. early days of dating, I think there can be this magical experience of you're so awesome and I tell you all the time. And then sometimes we miss those details of each other that I want to be appreciative for. And so had we had 80-80 when we were dating, I would love to believe that I never would have hidden Nate's shoes. Okay. (laughs) So I guess that's a good transition to going into like really what 80-80 means because like I would love, I would love this idealistic state that I preserve how I'm feeling today (laughs) for the rest of my life, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's really two pieces to it. So one of it is a shift in mindset and one of the pieces is about the structure of your life. So if you look at the mindset piece, it's really this shift from that default habit of 50-50 fairness thinking that leads us to keep score to an alternative mindset of radical generosity, where the idea is instead of just striving for 50% contribution to the relationship, we strive for 80%. Mm -hmm. And that makes no sense. The math doesn't add up. We're well aware (laughs) of that. In some ways, that's the whole point, because it turns out that from the perspective of fairness, generosity is actually irrational. Generosity doesn't make any sense. And so when you're anchored in that fairness perspective, it becomes very limited and it leads to all sorts of conflict. So making that shift to generosity is sort of step one. And there's really a few different pieces to that. So one of them is just these small micro actions of contribution. So, you know, we think in relationships that contribution needs to be some huge thing like planning a trip to Bali and like, wow, Kaylee's going to be so excited about that. But it turns out that what's actually more important are those little micro actions, you know, leaving a post-it note on her computer monitor that says, I love you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, taking her car to fill it up with gas. It sounds so mundane, but it can be huge. The second piece is about appreciation, which Kaylee talked about a moment ago, which is really just like, instead of scanning your partner for everything they're doing wrong Mm -hmm. and all the ways in which they didn't quite measure up, you're looking for the things they did right. Mm -hmm. And then when you see that, appreciating them. And then there's one other piece, which is really about, can you reveal 
your full truth in the relationship. And revealing is about revealing, hey, what's really going on with me at work, in life, emotionally. Mm. But it's also about like all those little microscopic ruptures and connection that happen when I feel pissed off that, you know, Kaylee nagged me about not unloading the dishwasher mm. or whatever that might be. It's it's just revealing that so that instead of pulling us further apart, it, it brings us closer together. And it gives you permission for each other to give that extra 30% in a relationship and to share that extra 30%. But I know we have some very quantitative based listeners (laughs) who are thinking, how do you know you've been giving 80% versus 65% or 70%. How do you know when you've hit the 80%? You you don't, which is in some ways the (laughs) point that the whole idea is, can you stop scorekeeping? Because in Mm. some ways you could do it where it actually becomes the exact same problem. I just gave 80% and you were only at 72 is exactly the same argument (laughs) as fighting for 50-50. So the whole idea is, can I overshoot? Can I do more? I would add a bit of a caveat here, which I think is really neat early in relationships, which is around what matters to you to receive. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to go above and beyond, might as well have it land in the other person's world as something fantastic that they really cherish. Where as a, for instance, early on, Nate would get me flowers and it was amazing and lovely, except I am so good at killing living things that can't speak for themselves. <laughs> so these gorgeous flowers would live for one day and then I would just feel bad about myself. Whereas, <laughs> whereas if he could plan something for us to do together, even if it was free, that meant the world to me. And mm-hmm. so finding ways that if you're going to do that extra 30% or if you're going to stop keeping score, can you do something that really feels delightful to the person that you're doing it for? It's honing in on love languages for sure. Completely, yes. And what I'm hearing too is it's like, how do we appreciate the part of the relationship that, you know, made us attracted to this person in the first place, not if they've done the dishes or they've done some other kind of household type thing. And then that stuff also is going to come into play, but how can we start to, you know, appreciate the stuff that made us fall in love in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I'll say that I think is really important is I think for a lot of people, when they first hear this idea of radical generosity, it sounds like this kind of fantasy land that's almost delusionally great that could never actually work, you know, because many of us, our psychology is locked in this perspective of fairness. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is important to, to know about this is that there's a way in which your mindset in relationships is contagious. And that applies if you're in that 50-50 mindset of fairness, but it also applies if you're in the 80-80 mindset of radical generosity. Mm -hmm. So the way this actually works in a tangible fashion is that when you do that shift to radical generosity, there's a contagious way in which your partner starts to pick up on that. And your your own your resentment starts to dissolve, but your partner's resentment starts to dissolve. And that's the way it actually shifts the culture of the relationship is through that sort of contagious nature of mindset. 
Ideally, right? But there could be a relationship where the other partner just keeps taking, taking, and taking. <laughs> and that's when you know you should probably get out of that relationship, I assume. Or is there a way to turn it around? I guess that's the question, right? <laughs> it, could, it could be either one. So if you're in a relationship where it feels like you are being taken advantage of or where it feels like you've tried to have the conversation and it's not shifting, that might be a moment where you say, perhaps this isn't a person with whom I'm going to take that next step. If, however, you are already committed or you're really interested in stretching yourself and growing, it's a great inquiry to wonder, how am I setting it up so that I'm the person who's doing it all? And it's in some ways a difficult look in the mirror. I was that person where I was doing everything and then I would just resent Nate and I got a little mm. adrenaline boost of I'm so responsible and I do everything mm -hmm. and you're such a slacker. And I was mad and I complained and I also was controlling and seated no responsibility. And so with that tricky look in the mirror, I could see I've set it up this way Yes, yes. What am I willing to risk <laughs> to have Nate be the partner that I most want? I can really relate to that because I think I've been that person in past relationships. And I think I even said to you, I'm like, I think it comes down to trust. Like I don't trust people. And you like have that sense of control. And it's been like a work to try to relinquish that trust. And I've definitely seen it show up different in my current relationship. Like how do people start to like relinquish <laughs> control? And, you know, because I think part of it's like, if I don't do it, what if it doesn't happen at all in my expectations? aren't met. I would encourage folks who relate to you and me, Julie, <laughs> to start with things that aren't the end of the world. So mm. I might start with something where I say, it's okay if the meal isn't perfect, or it's okay if the date is great and not amazing, or it's okay if whatever it is, isn't exactly the way that I would do it if it were me. I wouldn't start with, you know, it's okay if we just don't show up to babysit my niece, right? I would, <laughs> I would start with things where the, the consequences of it not working out well are livable. But I think the other piece that's really challenging if you're in that controlling mentality is sometimes we also forget to give our partner enough tools to do it well. So mm -hmm. as a, for instance, I controlled all of our finances for the first gosh, Nate, 10 years of our relationship. And again, I would get so mad that he would spend in ways that I thought were irresponsible, but I also gave him no insight into our finances. So it was a completely unfair complaint. Only when I showed him how to do all the things that I was doing and gave him access mm. to all of the things that I was looking at, which was, to your point, requiring that I trusted a lot more, could he actually shift his behavior and show up the way that I wanted? So how do we take this into more of a domestic situation? I'm just thinking about something as mundane as taking out the trash or doing the dishes or doing the grocery shopping. If I feel like I want my partner to also help with these things. Do I give him that information and say, these are the things that would make our relationship better? Or do you, if you're the one wanting to do these things, you just do it and have your partner step up in other ways? Well, this is where I think 
having a conversation about the structure of your life together is super important Mm. Mm. because you can be radically generous all day and end up in that pattern you were talking about, UA, where you end up doing everything. Mm -hmm. And that's really not a good place for you. And it's probably not a good place for your partner to be in. So there's also a conversation here about how are we setting up our lives together, which interestingly isn't really an interesting conversation or a necessary conversation when you're dating. You know, when you're dating, structure is like who's going to call who or who's going right, to text who right, or where right. are we going on Friday night. It's like all these really fun, exciting questions. And then you move in together and all of a sudden the scope of these structural issues expands. And so for us... One of the key structural pieces that changed everything turned out to be super simple. We sat down one day and we wrote out all of our roles and responsibilities Mm. in our sort of marriage together. So Kaylee had her list. I had my list. And it wasn't to see like, is this fair? It was more to see, is this working for us? And are we even clear on who's doing what? Because a lot of couples, you know, we did all these interviews and we'd ask, how did you decide who does what? How did you come up with a structure of roles? And almost every couple we talked to said, I don't know. We just kind of <laughs> winged it. <laughs> we started to call that the wing it approach, where the idea is, hey, let's let 1950s gender norms and historical accident determine who does what. <laughs> right. And it turns right. out that's a really bad system. <laughs> and it leads generally to the woman in the relationship and heterosexual relationship doing more. So literally, you can write out your roles And then you have the opportunity, which Kaylee and I did, to think, hey, let's come up with a new structure that fits what we're good at, what we like to do, that gives us actual Mm -hmm. clarity around who does what. And for us, that was Mm. a total game changer. Right. Okay, let's hold that thought for a few quick messages. This episode is sponsored by Via. We all know there are things that can help set the mood in the bedroom, but did you know a little THC could also do that? Yes, Via has developed a unique blend of pleasure-enhancing cannabinoids, libido-strengthening herbs, and a low dose of THC all into one mind-blowing gummy called High Love. This gummy, wow, it will awaken your senses, increase blood flow, and intensify any sexual experience. I've been pleasantly surprised by the High Love gummies because it is just the right amount of THC for me to have a good time without feeling sleepy. And hey, if THC is not your thing, Via also offers a wide array of other gummies without it. And everything legally ships in 50 states with discreet packaging directly to your door. So if you're over 21, you can get 15% off and a free pack of award-winning Dreams THC plus CBN sleep gummies with our exclusive code DATEABLE at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. Let the gummies work their magic. Head to ViaHemp.com and use the code DATEABLE to receive 15% off and one free sample of their sleepy dream gummies. That's ViaHemp.com and use the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E at checkout. Take your passion and pleasure to a whole new level with high love from ViaHemp. This episode is made possible by Armoire. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out. Listen, I live in Southern California. There is absolutely no need for puffer coats or any sort of those winter jackets. But when I travel anywhere else in the world in these cold months, I'm 
often burdened with the task of getting winter clothes. And now with Armoire, I can just rent my winter wardrobe. It's brilliant. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash datable. That is armoire.style, spelled A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Support for Datable is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices from phones to AirPods to tablets. They obsess over their tech to protect yours. It's like Incipio's line of products was made for me because with their phone cases, my phone is protected from drops as high as 14 feet. The cases are also wireless charging compatible and there's a lifetime warranty. So they've got you covered. I have the Organic Core Clear Case, which is made up of 100% compostable materials that reduces landfill waste by naturally re-entering the environment from where it started. All the packaging is made out of 100% recyclable materials with eco-friendly water-based ink. Now for Datable listeners only, we have a special offer. These incredible cases are now available for purchase at incipio.com and you can use the code DATABLE for 20% off. That's I-N-C-I-P-I-O.com and use the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E for 20% off. I think you did a really great job in the book, like doing kind of the history of the evolution of marriage. And you hit on it, this 80-20, which was Mm -hmm. the more traditional gender roles, what our parents' generation was, you know, in in a marriage. And I definitely see this with my parents. Like my mom does the more domestic tasks, owns the household. And then my dad is the primary breadwinner, like from a work perspective. But obviously things have shifted with women's equality in the 50-50 world was more like separating it. So where do you see the future with 8080 with roles and responsibilities? Like I know you just mentioned, Nate, a little about doing what works for you, but how do you see that playing out? I think the belief is if you are able to look at all of the things that you're up to as a couple and then select your roles based on what you're good at and what you care about, And then make some choices where I don't know that anybody's like, you know what I'm so good at is taking out the trash. (laughs) (laughs) But being willing to say, hey, it it really bothers me when the trash can starts to get to the top. I'm going to own that because it bothers me so much more than it bothers Mm. you. And being willing Mm. to have the conversation from that perspective, what it allows is choice. It allows intentionality also around things that you might say, we want to outsource that, that Mm. Mm -hmm. it's not important to either of us. Can we make some decisions to either not do it at all or to outsource it? And just having the conversation as I look into the future, what I imagine is complementarity rather than fighting over what needs to be done. I am so on board with this, but I'm also very curious too, because Julie's aware that at the beginning of the pandemic, when my boyfriend and I accidentally moved in together, like lots of couples did, we had a <laughs> lot of conflicts in the beginning because I think there's a, there's this notion or a, assumption that when you live together, you contribute to the same tasks. So for him, he felt like, well, if he's getting the groceries, that I would just voluntarily want to hop on this grocery train and say, let me help get more groceries. Do you believe, and I'm sure it's different for all relationships, but do you believe in general couples should have 
clearly defined roles and responsibilities where they don't share these responsibilities so you know exactly what you're doing from day to day. I think there is so much value in clarity and becoming Mm. more conscious about who's doing what. So in some ways, I think the biggest shift you can make on all levels in a relationship is going from unconscious, unintentional, chaotic to conscious, structured, clear. And Mm. so it doesn't necessarily lead to, okay, well, now you need to have two completely different lists of roles and responsibilities, and there should be no shared roles in the household. I don't think that's the conclusion here. I think the primary conclusion is the clearer it is, the more both people are aware of what the structure actually looks like, the less you're going to fight about it. And then you get to decide do we want to share certain things? So Kaylee and I have a number of shared roles. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. she makes dinner, sometimes I make dinner. Sometimes she takes our daughter to school, sometimes I do. And we actually like that because those are both things that we enjoy doing. But there are other things where it's it's a clearly defined Nate role. So I am the trash guy. I take the (laughs) trash out. I did it this morning. I do it every Tuesday morning. That's just my job. If Kaylee started taking the trash out, I would actually be really confused and worried, (laughs) concerned that I woke up in some bizarro universe or something. (laughs) So I, I think that's really the key. And then the other thing to think about is with all these structural pieces around finances and roles and, and priorities that they change. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like you just do this once, you know, you move in together during COVID and you're like, okay, let's define our roles for the next hundred years. Right. It's, it's more like, hey, let's define our roles for now. And then mm-hmm. who knows what's going to happen? Maybe you move to a different home and you've got all sorts of new things to worry about. You got a pool to clean or a hot tub to clean, right. or whatever it is. So it's an on going dynamic process. Right. So, okay. So this is like more back to like the 1920s type view, the 80-20, but it was based on your breadwinning, right? Like the man didn't do the household because they were the one that made more money. In today's world, that could be either partner. Do you view that there is still an association with work and income that correlates to home? Or do you view those as two separate things? Interestingly, what we found goes hand in hand with money is if you're not intentional about it, that can very easily lead to power dynamics in your relationship. So it's not necessarily that the power shows up around who's going to do the domestic tasks or who's going to take care of the child, but rather it becomes If you're not mindful about balancing the power, the person Mm -hmm. who earns more money often unconsciously feel like they get an extra vote. So Mm -hmm. we heard from couples in our interviews, things like, I decide where we go on vacation because it's really my money. And then got it. Yeah. And it would come out sideways where the person's like, oh, it's it's your vacation, is it? And so passive aggressiveness started to occur. And what we really encourage in 8080 is noticing where power is showing up in balanced in your relationship and using structure as a tool to help bring it into balance. So sometimes that looks with money like a budget. Sometimes that looks like how you do independent pots of money versus shared pots of money. If it's around domestic labor, it might also be around these roles and responsibilities. If it's around sex, you might use structure around, do you set up a date night or are there different cues that you use with one another so that you balance drive? But it's really about power that you want to pay attention. 
So I could hear like the people that are dating and super single. This is a little daunting. Is this what I'm signing up for? Is there ways that we can kind of get ahead of this in early stage dating and start to apply these kind of methodologies early on? One, I guess, to kind of set up this ADAD mentality and then also vet if your partner has the capacity to do mm-hmm. something like this. Yeah, I love that question. And Kaylee and I were just talking earlier about how in some ways building a relationship is like building a company and Mm. you have that early stage where it's all just an idea and you can Mm. just dream big and it's all possibility and like, wow, what if we change the world with this thing? And you don't have to worry about setting up HR or <laughs> yep. protecting yourself from litigation, you know, like hiring an investment banker to acquire a company. It's just so simple. And so <laughs> I think the same is true of a relationship where you start off in that dating phase and it's it can be very magical. And you actually don't want to think about all this structural stuff. There's mm-hmm. like an aversion to it because it's mm-hmm. not very fun and interesting. But I think it's worth thinking about, especially as you start to make that transition towards something more serious. So not even marriage, but just like you're starting to transition from casual dating to, hey, I might actually want to build something with this person. There are just a couple tools that you might want to start working with. So one is just this mindset that we've been talking about, radical generosity. But another is really starting to explore what we call in the book revealing, which is, as I said before, it's just the ability to reveal your full truth, the good and the bad. And, you know, I know from my experiences of dating, this was like one of the biggest barriers to having a successful relationship. And it was usually me having some issue with the person I was dating. You know, maybe they showed up five minutes late or I didn't like their phone hygiene or something like that. (laughs) And I never told them about it. And instead I was like, well, you know, I can't date someone who's five minutes late. Right. This isn't going to work. You set your own (laughs) rules. Mm -hmm. And then you think there's someone perfect out there that won't have any of these issues. The truth is I wasn't revealing that I have a really clear preference for having you there on time or whatever it is. And so that revealing piece, I think, is is just key. And without developing that muscle and that skill in a relationship, it's probably never going to go beyond dating, I would mm. hazard to say. What do you think about, since we're talking about early stage dating, how do we set the tone for revealing and basically setting boundaries in some ways and talking about your needs without stripping the romance out of a relationship? Or how do you infuse the romance back once you start having these conversations? Yeah, I think it's finding the other side of revealing Because what Nate's describing is essential. Being able to name with your partner the teeny tiny things that if they go unspoken could actually drive you apart. But the other side of revealing is knowing each other more deeply. And there's something really intimate and really attractive about getting to know someone at that next level. And so this could be anything from what's something that you dream about that you worry you might Mm. never get to experience. And in that conversation, you get fears and vulnerability and dreams all together. And that closeness is really powerful. And so using revealing as a space where it's actually quite intimate 
that I think starts to make sure that it doesn't become like, now I'm going to nitpick you, but rather (laughs) here's who I really am and who are you? So it's a combination of, hey, I really do not like dirty socks on the floor to my dream vacation and let's start working towards that. So you kind of balance (laughs) the domestic with the sexy dreams. Absolutely. (laughs) I think there's also a way of revealing that will lead to a helpful response by your partner and a way of revealing that will lead to an unhelpful response. Mm. And it really has to do with your motivation or the, the sort of underlying energy of the reveal. So if it comes purely from resentment, anger, and, and a place of criticism, your partner is going to mirror that back to you. Whereas if you can do this kind of Jedi mind trick and you can reveal your complaints from a place of radical generosity, which I know sounds crazy, but I it's possible. <laughs> I do it all the time. It, when you're able to do that, all of a sudden you get a very different response because it's coming from a place of, hey, I love you. I mm-hmm. want this to work. And when you leave your socks in front of my drawers, it's just, <laughs> it's really hard for me. I feel really frustrated. Yeah. I, th- the example that just happened that I thought was so powerful is I was with a couple and they had really different preferences about what happened with the phone at dinner. And uh. partner one said to the other, they were like, WTF with your phone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Unsurprisingly, the partner was like, F you with your phone. And Instead, I was like, all right, let's try this conversation again. Why does this matter to you? And the person said, anytime your phone comes out, it feels like I'm not important to you. Mm -hmm. And because we get Mm. so little time where it's just the two of us, I want you to be the most important person in my world in that moment. And I want to be the most important person in your world in that moment. Totally Mm. different conversation with totally different results. Yeah, I love that. Like thinking that your partner has your best interests and they are there because they love you and they want to be there. I think that's a good way to lead. I guess where I struggle a little, like especially with early stage, I'm going to go back here, is sometimes at that stage, you don't know where you stand with someone. So how can you lead with generosity and want to assume the best versus, you know, set yourself up for a bad situation? How do you like balance the two? It's a great question. And I think early stage, in some ways, what you're noticing is how does your partner meet you and how does your partner reciprocate? That Mm -hmm. you take a, a little risk and a little risk and a little risk. And as your partner takes a little risk and a little risk right back with you, you start to build something that's really special. What I wouldn't necessarily recommend is, you know, go reveal your darkest secret and then be like, what do you think of that? Right? That there's sort of <laughs> a time and grade and trust building that you've talked about a lot that helps you create a foundation so that you can keep revealing the things that are really important to you. The other thing that you could consider is in the book, we have an exercise around your values. And there's a place where, whether it's early in your relationship, if you're wanting to make sure that you don't waste your time, or if it's at an inflection point in your relationship where you're starting to feel like this could get more Mm. serious, a conversation about what values do you have for whatever chapter you're in? Like, how will Mm. you know that you are winning the game of serious dating? (laughs) Or how will you know that you're winning the game of life together and whatever that means for you? And there's not a right or wrong answer that some people will say, we'll know that we're winning if our life is characterized by adventure and love, Mm. and they might choose to go on amazing trips together. And others might say, we'll know that we're winning if 
we're able to support the other person pursuing a, a professional dream. And it's really that that springboard of support for them to go do that. Those relationships might look really different and those values might point them in different directions. Equally valid. It's just worth the conversation. And that's a really great one for the where do we stand and are we aligned inflection point. That makes a lot of sense. I'm really impressed that this conversation can span every phase of a relationship. Mm -hmm. If you couldn't tell by now, Julie and I are both in relationships that are different phases. Mm -hmm. So we've got the early stage. And then I'm sort of like in the three years in with the hiding the shoes and, you know, the mundane (laughs) things that Julie's afraid to get into. But something I do want to bring up is I was reading feedback about your book and some of the reviews. And this is what I find very fascinating is that it's a self-selecting process of the people who pick up your book because it's (laughs) the people who are already frustrated in their relationship. So someone said this, they said, the frustrating thing about this book is that the partner who is frustrated with the division of labor in a marriage will read it and the other one won't. But I think it applies it to almost all relationship books. This person who really needs to read it probably won't. What would you say to the people who are thinking this because they've already built up that resentment and this book probably makes them feel like I just need to throw this book at my partner and make them read it? Well, it's a great question. And this turned out to be one of the most fundamental questions we asked ourselves when we were writing this book. We ended up writing an entire chapter on it called the Reluctant Partner Chapter, Mm -hmm. because in some ways, this is the fundamental problem of a book like this, or the fundamental challenge of writing a book like this is that, yeah, as you said, a lot of people who buy this book, they're looking to enhance their relationship. They're likely the over-contributor. They're likely Mm -hmm. more interested in changing the relationship. And so the question becomes then, if you are that over-contributing partner, how do you motivate the under-contributing reluctant partner? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, as Kaylee mentioned before, this was our story. She was the over-contributing partner. I was the more reluctant partner who kind of had it great because she was doing everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then the question becomes, okay, well, how do you solve that problem? And I think there are a few things First of all, there is that principle that I laid out earlier that your mindset is contagious. So I mm-hmm. think like step one is to really look at your mindset because you may say, well, I already do 80%, but chances are you're doing 80% out of a mindset of this isn't fair. And right. there's a lot of resentment that's that's around that. So the first step is to just take that really close look at mindset and start running some little experiments in your life where you do that thing you always do that pisses you off but you see if you can shift to, hey, this is a gift to us as a couple. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I know that sounds very difficult, but if you're able to do that, all of a sudden you might notice some subtle changes in the way you interact together. But then I think it's also fair to bring in this practice of revealing and to start having some of these harder conversations. You know, if you're the one who does everything, it's fair to reveal that and to say, you know, hey, as a gift to our relationship, I'd like for you to do this practice with me on clarifying our roles together. Mm. Or I'd like you to sit down with me and let's talk through our values together. And it is totally unfair that you're the one who's having to initiate that. And it's totally unfair that you're having to push your partner into that. And yet 
that's how this might start to unwind the pattern is is taking that initiative and, and taking the risk, really. So I guess like from your own personal stories, then maybe Nate first, like how has this bettered your relationship overall? Like how has this kind of pushed you to be that next level version? And then Kaylee, I would ask you the same. I love that question. Well, for me, I was this reluctant partner. We got married at 26. I was living in a graduate student dorm. Kaylee had an actual career as a consultant and owned her own condo. So we were coming into this at very different stages of life, you might say, even though the, we mm-hmm. were the same age. And one of the things that was really interesting about my experience is you might think that the reluctant under-contributing partner has it made because here the other partner is doing everything. But actually my experience was it was incredibly painful yeah. to be the one in the relationship who was the problem, who was the slacker, who was lazy, who was never doing enough. Like when you take that on as an identity, that's actually incredibly painful. So once we started to have some of these conversations, and this really spans about 15 years, so it wasn't like there was a moment, but the more we started to get clear on our roles and our priorities and our values, and the more we started to shift our mindset away from fairness and just establish these clear structures, I felt like I was more empowered to be the partner that Kaylee wanted, to be an actual equal in our relationship. Mm. And I feel like that, you know, the benefit has been amazing. I mean, it, it really feels like we are a team in every way. And we, it's sort of us against the world. And it just feels like total collaboration. I mean, we were able to write a book and promote a book together, which is not an easy thing to do <laughs> as a married couple, but it was actually like really fun. And there was very little drama involved in the process. I agree in many respects with what Nate was saying. For me, mindset is necessary, but in some ways insufficient. That for me, the greatest change was being able to be crystal clear on what our family values are so that now there's so much more clarity about what I say yes to and what I say no to because I'm not asking anymore what is best for me. I'm asking what's best for us and the answer is different. And so the Mm. greatest benefit is what Nate was describing at the end, that we feel like a team and not a team where there's sort of the ball hog around whose turn is it to dunk, but rather truly a team around empowering the other person to be their best. Beautifully put. I mean, I take it that you guys believe that couples can come back from, you know, this mentality of scorekeeping and all that. What's some advice that you would have maybe for two groups of people, maybe the people in relationships that are kind of going through this current day, this tit for tat mentality, and then maybe the group also that fear is going to this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I think we are an example that this is possible because we were really stuck. I mean, we were right on the verge of divorce. Wow. It's kind of like a miracle that we didn't get divorced, but we were able to dig our way out of that. And it was really about changing the underlying habits and behaviors of how we related to each other and all these things. So when it comes to the group of people in relationships and what they can do, I think a good starting point is to really look at two habits, which we've talked about. One is one radically generous act of contribution each day, mm. which again, doesn't have to be huge. It could just be a very small thing. It could just be you make dinner for your partner or you make them a cup of coffee in the morning or you know you, you pick up their jacket that they left on the floor, whatever it is. But just doing that one thing can have a really profound effect. And then the 
other is that appreciation mindset shift, where if you can appreciate your partner once a day and flip around those glasses that you wear when you're watching your partner from everything they did wrong to everything they did right, that's another thing that's really powerful. And for us, we do this actually as a kind of ritual before we go to bed. We each appreciate each other for one thing. Mm -hmm. It takes like 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds, but it totally changes the energy of the day and it brings us into connection right before we go to sleep. So that would be for the established relationship folks. And then for the people who are like, I don't know if I want to do this. What I would say is we've talked a lot about structure and mindset and finances and power and all these kind of more boring, I'll say, structural pieces. But one of the things we haven't talked about is the reward on the other side of that, right. which is that when you are deeply connected with somebody, when you feel like you are absolutely on the same team, I mean, it's it's a unique human experience to feel that close and that connected. Mm-hmm. And I think that can often show up in the bedroom. So <laughs> you know, we like to say that through mindset and structure, you can create outrageously good sex. And I think that's <laughs> absolutely true because the thing that's keeping many couples from having amazing sex, especially after, you know, everything's new and you're not living together. And it's like, oh my God, I see this person every day at all hours of the day. (laughs) The thing that that can make sex amazing is connection. And you can get that through mindset and structure. Love that. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think for anyone at any stage Mm -hmm. of a relationship, I definitely have a couple takeaways that I'll kind of kick off. But I think my biggest takeaway is, you know, it's not to fear that like things are going to change in your relationship. But it's how do you maintain the stuff that's working even in the early stages, knowing that things are going to change and knowing the structure is going to change. And I love this mentality of can you lead with not the fear? Can you lead of not getting like the fear of, you know, taking advantage of or being hurt or whatever they that may be? And that's what kind of drives that generosity. If you can change your mindset of this person wants to be with me, this person loves me, this person cares about me. And I think that I think is something regardless of what stage you are, even if it's something as annoying of this person isn't taking out the trash versus like this person maybe didn't text me back right away. Do they not like me anymore? I think this stays regardless of stage. And if you don't get the response that you wanted, then it's an opportunity for conversation and going Mm -hmm. that that deeper path of just like expressing what you need in a relationship. And I think that we can't be afraid to kind of have the expectation and have it fail because that is more of an opportunity to give your partner room to know how to show up. Mm. And then also if it turns out you have these conversations over and over again and things don't change, then you know what you need in a partner and that's grounds for the next partnership. So I think instead of leading with fear with this stuff, lead by the way you want to be in a relationship for yourself and, you know, not with the expectation, but also just as a way that this can strengthen your bond. Love that. My biggest takeaway is we can't chase fairness. And I feel like I've wasted much of my time chasing fairness, not just in relationships, but in life. And we all know life is not fair. There are certain things we just can't explain. But choosing to chase fulfillment Mm -hmm. and uh, this idea of equality in whatever the sense it means in a partnership. And I love that you 
you've equated it to building a business because you are creating an entity together and their roles in this entity and their their responsibilities. And it's great to carve out clarity within this entity. I also love this notion of stepping forward instead of testing your partner. Mm-hmm. I think earlier on in a relationship, we're constantly testing the person we're dating. Oh, are they going to pass this test? Are they going to say the right things, do the right things? But we also have to understand that person has no idea what the right thing is in your mind because they cannot read your mind. Unless if they're psychic, then they should absolutely do that. But stepping forward is a contagious act where if you do it and the right person wants to do the same, you just keep meeting each other and moving forward together. My last big takeaway is revealing. I, this, I haven't ha- heard it put in this word before. We've talked about vulnerability. We've talked about open communication, speaking your needs, but revealing to me actually paints it in a more romantic way that mm-hmm. you are showing a part of you that maybe you haven't shown other people. And the more we can reveal who we are, the closer we can feel to our partners. So I really appreciate you putting that in my vocabulary because I think next time, when I have a check-in with my partner, it's not a check-in anymore. It's a revealing party. <laughs> it's yeah. a reveal party. <laughs> well, I, I think this that. like showing up is contagious and this constant showing up of of the be the partner you want to be, essentially. And you know, at that point, you'll either let someone rise up with you, or you know, if it's really not the right fit, it's not forever either. And that's the thing that it can save something that is going down a bad path, or it can help you get clear on, you know, the path for you. Thank you so much, Nate and Kate for writing this book and also (laughs) speaking from your experience because I think it just gives us so much more weight when you can say we've lived it, we've been there, we survived it, and this is what we came up with, something that really works. And something we all look for in modern dating is models, examples, ways that we can do relationships in a way that makes sense to us in a modern day. So thank you for paving the way for that as well. For people who want to get their hands on your book, I'm guessing it's available wherever books are sold and anywhere else more direct. (laughs) Yeah, they can go to 8080marriage.com. That's our website. Information on the book is there. We also have a newsletter and a free epic date night for those who are further down where they have to do date nights. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram as well at 8080marriage. Love it. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I think, again, this was so great for people at all stages of relationships to get the wheels turning and see what an 80-80 marriage can look like. And for our listeners, we we gave you 80 and we hope you get 80 back. I mean, we're not keeping tabs, but a way to give 80% back is to give you give us a good review in Apple Podcasts, <laughs> five stars, a few lines, you know, and then we just keep bringing you better and better content. That's how we meet each other in our relationship. Radical generosity, right? <laughs> Too bad you can't do more than five stars. If you could, I'm sure you would, right? (laughs) Okay, we're going to wrap this up in true dateable fashion. Stay Stay dateable. dateable! The Dateable Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Want to continue the conversation? First, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at Dateable Podcast. Tag us in any post with the hashtag stay dateable and trust us, we look at all those posts. Then head over to our website, datablepodcast.com. 
There you'll find all the episodes as well as articles, videos, and our coaching service with vetted industry experts. You can also find our premium Y series where we dissect, analyze, and offer solutions to some of the most common dating conundrums. We're also downloadable for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, Stitcher Radio, and other podcast platforms. Your feedback is valuable to us, so don't forget to leave us a review. And most importantly, remember to stay dateable. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.